We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Conspiracy the Show. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host today, ooh, my favorite co-host of all, no co-host. I don't even have any guests. The reason for that being, this is another of those banned media report episodes where I talk about a book or a movie or documentary that, for whatever reason, has been sort of wiped from existence and... You know, asking a co-host to track down an out-of-print book and read all 300-plus pages of absurdly tiny print is a little more than I'm willing to do while also just paying out co-host money for it. So, I do these episodes on my own. The book we're talking about this time around is called The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence by Victor Marchetti and John D. Marks. This is a hugely important moment in American history that has mostly been lost to history. Important why? Because it's the first book the American government ever sued to have censored before it was published. Absolutely a landmark moment in terms of First Amendment protections. Despite all that, this book is very hard to find now. It's currently out of print. If you rely on sites like Amazon, you're going to pay $500 or more for a shitty used paperback copy. But I think that's just an algorithm thing. Once there's not that many available, there's pricing software that goes in and basically glitches out and prices stuff according to scarcity. So books like this end up looking like they are less attainable than they are. I got my shitty used paperback copy on eBay for pretty cheap. It also appears to be available in some libraries, So you can find it. You're just not going to be able to download it to your Kindle or anything of the like. As mentioned earlier, the book was written by Victor Marchetti and John D. Marks. Victor Marchetti served in the U.S. Army during the early years of the Cold War. In 1955, he was recruited by and joined the CIA. During his time with the agency, he became the government's leading expert on Soviet military aid to third world countries, which... Back then was probably a way more exciting assignment than it sounds like it would be. Also, that's an important detail when it comes to this book, because a lot of it deals with U.S. intervention and interference in the affairs of third world countries. I think we call them underdeveloped nations now. This book is from the 1970s. If that's as culturally insensitive as it gets, I'll be relieved. Anyway, 
Marchetti's research work as a CIA analyst, among other things, led to our uncovering of the Soviet hijinks that culminated in the Cuban Missile Crisis. From there, he moved on to serve in a few different important and high-level offices within the CIA, including Special Assistant to the Chief of Planning, Programming, and Budgeting, Special Assistant to the Executive Director, and Executive Assistant to the Deputy Director. And... He credits working in these roles with giving him a better understanding of how the CIA actually worked. At the time, it was still claiming to just be a central clearinghouse and producer of intelligence reports. What he found during his employment was that the CIA didn't do any of those things. Rather, to quote Marchetti, its basic mission was that of clandestine operations particularly covert action, the secret intervention in the internal affairs of other nations. End quote. He resigned from the CIA in 1969, nice, and immediately got to work on the book that he hoped would lay bare the CIA's inner workings and true motivations. And that book is not the one we're talking about today. Instead, it was a fictional novel called The Rope Dancer. The book didn't do much damage, though, so he moved on to trying to get a review and investigation of CIA operations started in Congress. Surprise, surprise, most of them didn't care either. So with that, he decided to write this book, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. However, on account of a whole bunch of legal intervention by the U.S. government, which we'll talk about in more detail shortly, he had to bring on a co-author. That co-author was John Marks, and he was not in the CIA. He joined the Foreign Service, which is a wing of the State Department, fresh out of college. And his feelings toward the U.S. government changed when he went to Vietnam to work as a civilian advisor in something called the Pacification Program. Just for the record, there are two definitions of the word pacification. The first is the state of being pacified. The second, the act of suppressing or eliminating a population considered to be hostile. So I'm guessing it was the second one we were dealing with in Vietnam, as far as those definitions go. Anyway, while in that role, he came to view U.S. policy in Vietnam as not only ineffective, but just straight up wrong. That's something I feel like he could have determined just from the fact that he was joining a pacification program there. But I digress. He was introduced to the U.S. intelligence community after being assigned to work as staff assistant to the State Department's intelligence director, whose job was to act as a liaison between the intelligence community and the State Department. I bet that's fun. There, he saw the exact same inefficiency and poor decision-making that led us into the disaster that was the war in Vietnam. Here's a quote from Marx. In the high councils of the intelligence community, there was no sense that intervention in the internal affairs of other countries was not the inherent right of the United States. End quote. He says the last straw for him was the U.S. invasion of Cambodia in 1970. Not long after that, he met Victor Marchetti and the idea for this book was born. So, The authors of this book clearly have some in-depth understanding of the topic they're covering. When you combine that with the fact that the government fought tooth and nail to have this book censored, it makes for the rare conspiracy-related book that has none of that is-this-all-a-lie stink to it. What's in this book is real, and it's fascinating. Granted, some of the information might be a little outdated, 
I'm sure the CIA is getting up to much wilder stuff now, but it was also pretty crazy in the 1970s. And that's what kind of stuff is in this book. It's about what the CIA was getting up to in the 60s and 70s, beyond the things we already know about, like Watergate and MKUltra and, you know, Jonestown. So if you've ever been curious about that, this is the book for you provided you can still find it, it really gets into the nuts and bolts of the agency's operations and budgets and even the organizational structure. I can't imagine there's a better resource out there for information about what I would consider the glory years of the CIA, that point in history when they were doing whatever they wanted and nobody knew anything about any of it. I mean, we're still kind of at that point now, but this book came out right as we as a country were on the verge of really calling the CIA out on their shit by way of the Pike Committee and the Church Committee. This book also came out hot on the heels of another historic attempt at censorship on the part of the U.S. government, that being the 1971 New York Times Pentagon Papers scandal. Have you seen The Post, the movie with Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep? That's about the Pentagon Papers. Go watch it. If you haven't, but also I'll give you the Cliff's Notes version. And yes, it is Cliff's Notes, not Cliff Notes. In June 1967, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara created something called the Vietnam Study Task Force. And his motivation, he claimed, was to put together, quote, an encyclopedic history of the Vietnam War. And again, that's what he claimed his motivation was why someone would want to document the history of the Vietnam War in that much detail from within the U.S. government is beyond me, unless you were trying to sugarcoat all of the things that went wrong there. But he was not. There were some reports that he planned to share the findings with his friend, Robert F. Kennedy, who was seeking the Democratic presidential nomination in 1968. Either way, he never informed President Lyndon Johnson or Secretary of State Dean Rusk about the study. 36 analysts worked on it. Half were active-duty military officers. The other half were academics and civilian federal employees. The study they produced consisted of 3,000 pages of analysis and 4,000 pages of documents spread out across 47 volumes. But please... Tell me more about how much praise you deserve for reading the Mueller report. It's 400 pages. Anyway, so with it being that big, clearly I cannot tell you everything that was in there, but I can assure you it was highly controversial and not a good look for the U.S. government. Among other things, the study revealed that the U.S. had secretly increased the scope of its actions in Vietnam and, even worse, the Johnson administration had, quote, systematically lied not only to the public but also to Congress, end quote, about the country's involvement in Vietnam. One of the people who worked on that study was Daniel Ellsberg. By the time he was granted security clearance to access the full report, he had become vehemently opposed to the war in Vietnam. And as such, he and a friend named Anthony Russo decided to photocopy the entire report, which, reminder, consisted of about 7,000 pages with the intent of releasing it publicly at some point. That detail is just one of the many reasons why I know I will never even come close to toppling a government. Yes, what we did in Vietnam was terrible, but having to photocopy 7,000 pages sounds like torture I'm not willing to endure for any cause. If you told me I had to photocopy 7,000 pages, 
I'd tell you to expect them sometime in the early 2030s. Who even has that much paper laying around? Anyway, in Ellsberg's opinion, the documents, quote, demonstrated unconstitutional behavior by a succession of presidents, the violation of their oath, and the violation of the oath of every one of their subordinates, end quote. He also said the leak was intended to end what he considered a wrongful war. Ellsberg talked to a New York Times reporter named Neil Sheehan about the study in 1971 and provided him with 43 of the 47 volumes. The New York Times went back and forth over whether or not to publish it, but finally they decided they should on the grounds that the press has a First Amendment right to publish information significant to the people's understanding of how their government works. They began publishing excerpts on June 13, 1971, and a wave of protests and lawsuits from the American people followed pretty much immediately thereafter. Shortly after publication, the study came to be known as the Pentagon Papers in the press. Concern over the scandal crossed administrations, which, as I've mentioned before, is usually a sign of trouble. The story broke when Nixon was in office, but Nixon being Nixon, he didn't want to respond to it at all because it only impacted his enemies on the other side of the aisle. So why not just let them look bad in the eyes of the public? But the notoriously cool and good for the world Henry Kissinger thought not saying anything would set a bad precedent for hiding secrets in the future. So he pushed Nixon to act. I told you that cross-administration thing is bad. And Nixon did act. His administration argued that Ellsberg and Russo were guilty of a felony under the Espionage Act of 1917. That's treason, baby. Yikes. Nixon and his people followed that up by trying to coerce the New York Times into voluntarily ceasing publication of the Pentagon Papers. When that failed, they obtained a court injunction that forced the Times to stop publishing after three articles. They appealed that ruling, and in response to the government's crackdown on the New York Times, The Washington Post also started publishing the Pentagon Papers. That prompted the government to seek a similar injunction against them, except this time the judge disagreed. In response to all of that, the Supreme Court agreed to hear the New York Times and Washington Post cases jointly, at which point 15 other publications started running the Pentagon Papers. And with that, the Supreme Court sided with the people and allowed further publication. But that wasn't the end of it. Reminder... The government also charged Ellsberg and Russo with espionage, and that still had to be dealt with. Unfortunately for the government, and fortunately for Ellsberg and Russo, a mistrial was declared after it was revealed that Nixon's goon squad called the Plumbers, same people who carried out the Watergate break-ins, had also broken into the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist, in an effort to find information they could use to discredit him. Representatives of the Nixon administration also approached the trial judge and offered him an FBI director job. So that's pretty shady. And a mistrial was declared, and Ellsberg and Russo were released, and eventually, the Pentagon Papers were published in their entirety. And by eventually, I mean 2011. That's when they were finally released in their entirety. But even back in the 70s, Enough of them were released to the public to make it a huge problem for the government. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. 
carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So cut to 10 months later. History doesn't mention it nearly as much, but right after the government tried to shut down the news media, they tried the same thing with this book. On April 18th, 1972, Victor Marchetti became the first American writer to be served with an official censorship order issued by a court of the United States. That order prohibited him from, quote, disclosing in any manner any information relating to intelligence activities, any information regarding intelligence sources or methods, or any intelligence information. The government's argument was that, in his role with the CIA, Marchetti signed several secrecy agreements that precluded him from revealing any information learned during his employment. And by writing that book, they claimed he was violating these secrecy agreements and that publication of the book would, quote, result in grave and irreparable injury to the interests of the United States, end quote. As a result of these claims, Judge Albert Bryan Jr. of the United States District Court for the Eastern District of Virginia in Alexandria signed a temporary restraining order forbidding Marchetti from disclosing any information about the CIA and requiring him to submit any manuscript, article, or essay, or other writing, factual or otherwise, to the CIA before releasing it to any person or corporation. At that point, the ACLU got involved. The first court date happened a few days later, and Judge Bryan not only refused to lift the order, he also refused to let Marchetti's lawyers read the affidavit filed by the government on account of how they had labeled it secret. That meant none of Marchetti's legal team had the proper security clearance to read it. In order to freely discuss the affidavit, not only did the lawyers have to be granted security clearance, so did any witnesses they intended to call. In other words, they couldn't even talk to witnesses if the government didn't approve of those witnesses, which is insane. The ensuing appeals were unsuccessful, and in December 1972, the litigation came to an end when the Supreme Court refused to hear the case. Again, wildly important moment in U.S. history. Up to this point, prior restraints, aka injunctions against publication, were considered a threat to the very core of democracy. Before they tried to stop the Pentagon Papers from being published, the U.S. government had never even considered anything of the sort. A few states had tried it before, but they were always shot down by the Supreme Court. But now, the federal government was trying it for the second time in less than a year. And this time around, they were winning. Even the Pentagon Papers' effort wasn't a total loss. They did prevent a U.S. publication from running a story for around 15 days, after all. But even worse, when the Supreme Court decision came down, only two justices agreed that injunctions against publication were constitutionally forbidden under any circumstances. It was just that the majority believed it wasn't warranted in that particular case. And it was that quirk in the Supreme Court ruling that gave the government the confidence to try this again. In all of the justice opinions in the Pentagon Papers case, there was one thing they all agreed on. Information could be suppressed only if the disclosure would result in direct, immediate, and irreparable damage to the nation or its people. And the author's legal team wasn't concerned about that standard because they didn't think 
Anything they plan to reveal would cause any damage, just like the Pentagon Papers didn't. The only damage or fallout from that was to the reputation and careers of the government actors involved. It didn't do anything to hurt the country. None of us suffered for it. And Marchetti and Marx and their legal team were thinking, same thing here. This should be a cakewalk. The problem was the government wasn't using that argument this time around. Instead, they argued that they were merely attempting to enforce a contract Marchetti signed with the CIA. So it's not a First Amendment case. It's just a contract action. But again, there wasn't a whole lot of precedent for the stipulations of the secrecy agreements, like the one Marchetti signed, actually being enforced either. Disclosing classified information, at least at the time, probably still, wasn't a crime unless it was done in an espionage kind of way, with the intent to harm the country. The government tried prosecuting Daniel Ellsberg for espionage in the Pentagon Papers case. They failed only because a mistrial was declared, but there's a good chance they were going to fail Anyway, they were making a pretty extreme argument. The difference here is that Marchetti was disclosing classified information and signed a contract with the CIA that said he wouldn't. They felt that gave them the proper legal footing to stop this book from being published, if nothing else. And unfortunately, the courts mostly agreed. And that might sound reasonable at first, until you take into account that literally every government official who's ever written a memoir signed those same agreements and technically violated that agreement by writing said memoir. Still, this decision didn't mean the book couldn't be published at all. It just meant the CIA was allowed to read it first and censor any sections they didn't like. At first, they demanded that 339 sections be removed, which amounted to around 15 to 20% of the book. By the time the authors appealed that, the feds had reduced the number of sections they wanted deleted to 168. And this part of the legal wrangling over this book went a little better for Marchetti and Marx. The government's position was a pretty audacious one. In their opinion, material was classified if they said it should be classified. No other justification required in the government's opinion. And as if by magic, Judge Bryan disagreed with that and ruled that justification for why each section should be classified was required. And in most cases, the government wasn't able to prove that point. So in the end, only 27 of those sections were considered classified and removed from the book. So that brings us to the obvious question. What kind of information is in the CIA and the cult of intelligence? The short answer is that just like the CIA was probably afraid of. It's a very detailed account of how the agency worked at the time, what kind of shenanigans they were getting up to overseas and at home, and it even names names when it gets into describing the organizational structure. The book is divided into three parts. We're going to talk about part one today and then parts two and three on the next episode. Part one is further divided into three chapters. Chapter one is called The Cult of Intelligence, Chapter 2, it's called The Clandestine Theory. Chapter 3, The CIA and the Intelligence Community. Gonna be honest, that third chapter is mostly organizational hierarchy stuff, and as such, it's kind of boring. So we'll mostly focus on those first two chapters for the rest of this episode. I doubt most of the people named in Chapter 3 are even alive anymore. This was a long time ago. And you know they were all like 50-year-old white men even by that point. So up first, chapter one, 
The Cult of Intelligence. The first page of this chapter really sets the tone for the rest of the book, as I suppose any good first page should do. So if you will please bear with me, I'm just going to read that first page verbatim. Just a heads up, the print in this book, very small. So this could take a bit. Sorry, here goes. There exists in our nation today a powerful and dangerous secret cult, the cult of intelligence. Its holy men are the clandestine professionals of the Central Intelligence Agency. Its patrons and protectors are the highest officials of the federal government. Its membership, extending far beyond governmental circles, reaches into the power centers of industry, commerce, finance, and labor. Its friends are many in the areas of important public influence, the academic world and the communications media. The cult of intelligence is a secret fraternity of the American political aristocracy. The purpose of the cult is to further the foreign policies of the U.S. government by covert and usually illegal means, while at the same time containing the spread of its avowed enemy, communism. Traditionally, the cult's hope has been to foster a world order in which America would reign supreme, the unchallenged international leader. Today, however, that dream stands tarnished by time and frequent failures. Thus, the cult's objectives are now less grandiose, but no less disturbing. It seeks largely to advance America's self-appointed role as the dominant arbiter of social, economic, and political change in the awakening regions of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And its worldwide war against communism has, to some extent, been reduced to a covert struggle to maintain a self-serving stability in the third world using whatever clandestine methods are available. For the cult of intelligence, fostering stability may in one country mean reluctant and passive acquiescence to evolutionary change. In another country, the active maintenance of the status quo. In yet another, a determined effort to reverse popular trends toward independence and democracy. The cult attempts that which it believes it can accomplish and which, in the event of failure or exposure, the U.S. government can plausibly deny. The end of page one, I mean, not the book. From there, the book gets into the wall of secrecy the CIA had built around itself by this point. They describe it as the clandestine mentality, a mindset that thrives on secrecy and deception. To quote the book, you can tell Marchetti wrote a novel before this. He's good with words. The book still kind of reads like a novel. The clandestine mentality is also described as being one that encourages professional amorality. In this case, the belief that our country's righteous goals can only be achieved through normally unacceptable means. One of the really interesting things they touch on in this first chapter is the relationship between the CIA and the president. Their assertion is that the president and the CIA generally agree on things and that the president usually knows what kind of stuff the agency is getting up to. It's just that it doesn't always seem that way. JFK is a good example. He said a lot of not nice things about the CIA, especially the part where he vowed to break them into a million pieces. But it was more because the Bay of Pigs invasion was a PR disaster, not because it was something he didn't know about. And as discussed on the Jonestown episodes, he was all for the CIA toppling the government of Guyana. Before him, the Eisenhower administration actively lied about CIA actions in Guatemala. Lyndon Johnson lied about pretty much everything 
involving the Vietnam War, including what the CIA was doing there. After Kennedy, the Nixon administration covered for the CIA toppling the government of Chile. Jimmy Carter was the last president to really confront the CIA publicly. He came into office promising a whole bunch of reforms as a result of the Church and Pike Committee hearings. But behind the scenes, when the CIA got wrapped up in a scandal over millions of dollars of secret and unexplained payments they made to Jordan's King Hussein, it was Jimmy Carter who lobbied the hardest for the agency's right to lie in the name of national security. And from there, we move on to the Reagan years, which is a whole other story we'll get to in a future episode. Another interesting detail from the first chapter is what the CIA was supposed to be when it started and how quickly it became something else entirely. How it started versus how it's going, as the memes say. The CIA sprung to life by way of the 1947 National Security Act, which was signed into law by Harry Truman, a man history it seems like still kind of views as a wimp, even though he's the only world leader to ever drop a nuclear weapon during war. Anyway, this wimp's vision for the CIA, as touched on earlier, was that it would just be a sort of clearinghouse for all of the intelligence gathered by the various other government agencies, and it would produce reports about things happening overseas so as to better inform our foreign policy. But Alan Dulles, the CIA's first director and a veteran of the wartime Office of Strategic Services, saw things a little differently. He envisioned the CIA more as a secret spy army that could help the U.S. achieve its foreign policy goals when diplomacy failed. And obviously, Alan Dulles won that argument. He did that by way of a seemingly unimportant passage in that 1947 National Security Act. The passage in question permitted the CIA to, quote, perform such other duties related to intelligence as the National Security Council may from time to time direct, end quote. And now here's a quote from the book regarding those words in the 1947 National Security Act, quote, from those few innocuous words, the CIA has been able over the years to develop a secret charter based on National Security Council directives and presidential executive orders, a charter almost completely at variance with the apparent intent of the law that established the agency, end quote. And that right there is the crux of this book, the disparity between what the CIA was supposed to be versus what it had become by this point in history. Chapter ends with a really interesting sentence. Here goes. The aim of this book is to provide the American people with the inside information which they need and to which they without question have the right to understand the significance of this issue and the importance of dealing with it. I say that last sentence is interesting because here's the thing. We never did deal with it. Seeing as how this book was published in the early 70s, we've had approximately 50 years to address the CIA's actions in other countries and intervening in the affairs of governments that we don't like. But we didn't, as worried as the CIA was about its publication, this book did absolutely nothing to stop them from continuing their work as a force for international instability on behalf of U.S. interests.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So now let's talk about chapter two, which is titled The Clandestine Theory. This is where the CIA censorship starts coming hot and heavy. In fact, the first line of the chapter just says one and a half lines deleted. Apparently, the part they wanted deleted was a quote from Henry Kissinger, because the next two actual sentences are, Henry Kissinger made that statement not in public, but at a secret White House meeting on June 27, 1970. The country he was referring to was Chile. So Henry Kissinger said something about Chile, and the feds didn't want us to know what it was. I'm sure it was nothing major, probably just a joke that hasn't aged well or something. The first few pages of Chapter 2 are all about that CIA intervention in Chile. Back when this book was published, the notion that the CIA interfered in another country's affairs to get their chosen candidate elected was mostly just a rumor and still a thing Nixon was publicly saying didn't happen. But now, we know all about it now. That is a thing that history has since confirmed did happen. But this book was on that train super early. There are still some super interesting details, despite all the redactions, and we'll get to those. But sometimes the redactions themselves are interesting just because of the sense of mystery they evoke. Case in point, this line, Henry Kissinger, the single most powerful man at the 40 committee meeting on Chile, comma, 25 and a half lines deleted. And it would have been more like 33 lines if not for one half of a sentence that was allowed to slip through before another six and a half lines are deleted. That sentence, during the next two months before Allende was officially endorsed as president by the Chilean Congress, comma, and that's it. The sentence ends at a comma, and then 6.5 more deleted lines. Nevertheless, like I said, there are still a few things of interest to be found here, like how the CIA met up with executives from two American corporations that were especially interested in stopping Allende from taking power in Chile. Those two corporations were ITT, International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation, I'm sure they're still doing great, and the awesomely named Anaconda Copper. They don't want none if it ain't copper, son. What the CIA discussed with them was a four-part plan of economic sabotage meant to destabilize the Allende regime to the point that the people would revolt and the military would take over. Now, officials from ITT would later claim that they dismissed this plan as unworkable at the time, and that is probably not true. What is for sure true is that three years almost to the day after Allende was elected, Chile was mired in financial distress and chaos, the people revolted, Allende was killed in a coup, and a military junta took over. The U.S. government tried its best to deny responsibility for the coup, but even way back in the 70s, we were already admitting that we did try to undercut the Allende government, but just a little bit, not much at all, just a little. All we did was cut off economic assistance, discourage private lines of credit, and block loans by international organizations. And we had a perfectly good reason for doing it. 
we wanted to bring about the collapse of the Allende government and discredit socialism. That's all. But in the end, we didn't do any of that. It just happened naturally, baby. That is what we actually wanted and expected people to believe for the longest time. And remember that part at the end of chapter one about the need to stop doing things like this? You can find a good example of how we definitely did not stop doing that in Venezuela. That country had the gall to elect a non-white socialist president named Hugo Chavez back in the early 2000s. And despite what the government told John Oliver to tell you to the contrary, we've been waging economic war against Venezuela ever since. We've tried at least three or four times to topple that government since then, including right after Chavez got elected. We launched a coup, flew him away in a helicopter, and the people protested so hard, we just let him go back to being president. And all of our subsequent attempts to topple the government since then have mostly just been efforts that ended up hurting the most poverty-stricken Venezuelan citizens while having no real impact on who actually runs the country. See, that's the thing about economic warfare. It destabilizes governments by inflicting pain and suffering on the people of that country, so then they get mad enough to want the government out. We don't drop bombs, we don't send in tanks, but people die all the same. The CIA has a phrase for operations like the one in Chile, covert action. And according to the book, that has been the CIA's main business function almost since the inception of the agency. And the book also provides a fascinating explanation for why that was the case. Basically, the CIA was bad at espionage. Turns out Russia was too much of a closed society and too good at surveilling people who entered their borders for any sort of intelligence gathering operations to have any impact. So the CIA just shifted focus to stopping less powerful countries from buddying up with the Ruskies. In other words, this is the point in history where America decides it's our job to protect the rest of the world from communism. And if we have to murder your democratically elected president in a bloody coup, we'll do it for you. And a lot of those efforts were focused on third world nations. And there is a reason for that focus. Here's what Richard Bissell of the CIA told the Council on Foreign Relations. Quote, simply because their governments are much less highly organized, there is less security consciousness, and there is apt to be more actual or potential diffusion of power among the parties, localities, organizations, and individuals outside the central government. End quote. In other words... Their instability makes them prime candidates for the kind of instability that makes American corporations rich. And some of the things they got up to in the name of fomenting that instability are wild. Take Air Force Colonel Edward Lansdale, for example. He's specifically brought up in this book. He is so famous for his adventures in psychological warfare mindfuckery, that he's the basis for the main character in two different novels about that very thing. His most notorious campaign happened in the Philippines. As the story goes, in that country, there exists a mythological beast that some portion of the population lives in fear of. It's called Aswang, A-S-U-A-N-G. Under Lansdale's guidance, a psychological warfare squad entered an area in the countryside of the Philippines and planted rumors that an Aswang lived where their communist targets were based. Two nights later, 
after giving the rumors time to circulate, the psychological warfare squad lays an ambush for the communist rebels that they're trying to put down. And when a patrol passed, the squad quietly snatches the last man in line, drags him into the woods, punctures his neck vampire style with two holes, hangs his body until the blood drains out, and then they just toss the corpse back onto the trail. In other words, they made it look like he got killed by that fearsome mythological beast. And that was all it took to get those insurgents to flee that area. Another example of his shenanigans happened in Vietnam, where during the 1955 presidential election in South Vietnam, he made sure the presidential candidate of our choosing had his name listed in red, which is a color that means good luck in that country. Meanwhile, his opponent's name was listed in green, and that color in that country means you're a cuckold. That's right, this book uses the phrase cuck, except the proper term, not the truncated internet version that we know and love today. From there, the book gets into kind of the operational procedures behind these covert actions in third world countries. Basically, a case officer would go in first. The case officer was responsible for lining up all of the contacts and sources and informants that the United States could ever need to bring down the government of that country if we ever decide to. The case officers and the agency in general call these sources and contacts penetrators. Ooh. And the actions they carried out on behalf of the CIA and the case officer? Well, those are called penetrations. Oh, yeah. Look at the CIA being all sexy and stuff. And all of this has to be done ahead of time. Because if you send the case officer in at the same time you're hoping to pull the trigger on toppling that government, you're not going to have all the penetrations in place to be successful. It's a long con. The book mentions eight different tactics that the CIA would use back then during these interventions in the affairs of other countries. Let's go through them, shall we? Number one, political advice and counsel. Number two, subsidies to an individual. Number three, financial support and technical assistance to political parties. Number four, Support of private organizations, including labor unions, business firms, cooperatives, etc. Number five, covert propaganda. Number six, private training of individuals and exchange of persons. Number seven, economic operations. And number eight, paramilitary or political action. Kind of like the Bay of Pigs invasion. Those all seem pretty self-explanatory, but after listing all of them, the book then tries to explain each one in a little more detail. They mention that the fifth and eighth categories, covert propaganda and paramilitary action, are going to be their own chapters later in the book. But when they try to get into explaining the other six points, that's when the CIA redactions come back in full force, to the point that it's not even worth trying to go through it. We're talking pages where in between each paragraph, there are 15 to 30 lines deleted. And honestly, that's not that surprising because when we're getting into this section of the book, we're getting into actual tactics the CIA uses to do what they perceive to be their job overseas, or at least that's what they did back when this book came out. Either way, they didn't want us to know. It's one of the redactions in this book that probably makes the most sense to me. And after all those redactions, the chapter ends by reminding us of something that was mentioned at the beginning of the book and at the beginning of this episode, which is that for the most part, every president has been mostly fine with all of the covert operations and actions 
carried out by the CIA overseas. Here is another direct quote from the book. Once again, it's kind of long. Apologies. Here goes. In no instance has a president of the United States ever made a serious attempt to review or revamp the covert practices of the CIA. Minor alterations in operational methods and techniques have been carried out, but no basic changes in policy or practice have ever been demanded by the White House. And this is not surprising. Presidents like the CIA. It does their dirty work. Work that might not otherwise be doable. When the agency fails or blunders, all the president need do is to deny, scold, or threaten. For the CIA's part, being the focus of presidential blame is an occupational hazard, but one hardly worth worrying about. It is merely an aspect of the cover behind which the agency operates. Like the other aspects of its cover, it is part of a deception. The CIA fully realizes that it is too important to the government and the American political aristocracy for any president to do more than tinker with it. The CIA shrugs off all the blunders and proceeds to devise new operations, secure in the knowledge that the White House usually cannot resist its offerings, particularly covert action. Covert action that dominates, that determines, that defines the shape and purpose of the CIA. America's leaders have not yet reached the point where they are willing to forsake intervention in the internal affairs of other countries and let events naturally run their course. There still is a widely held belief in this country that America has the right and responsibility to become involved in the internal political processes of foreign nations. And while faith in this belief and that of doctrinaire anti-communism may have been somewhat shaken in the last decade, six lines deleted. That's how the passage ends, and that's how this chapter ends. Just like it started, deleted lines. In this case, six lines deleted. But you get the idea. They're saying the presidency has always been in favor of CIA covert action. They just prefer that it stays covert, so they don't have to say anything about it. Now, I mentioned earlier that the CIA did sort of get taken to task not long after the publication of this book by way of the church committee and the Pike committee. That said, do you remember what the resulting action from all that hubbub was? The CIA was banned from operating on American soil against American citizens. In other words, they were banned from doing something they had no interest in doing in the first place. They just wanted to fuck up Latin America and not get any guff for it. And no one ever stopped them from doing that. So as I mentioned previously, the third chapter of this book titled The CIA and the Intelligence Community is kind of dull. It mostly deals with organizational structure and hierarchy. It's basically the authors doing their best to estimate how huge the CIA really was at that time. There were official personnel figures available but none of them took into account all of the contractors and various other intermediaries and penetrators the agency worked with. Their final estimation was that the CIA was huge, and they probably haven't gotten any less huge since. And with that, we've reached the end of part one of the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence. We'll probably drop a bonus episode in between, but on the next free episode, we'll dive into parts two and three of this book. Until then, I don't know, you can follow the show on Twitter or Instagram at Conspirapops. If you want to hear bonus episodes, you can subscribe at patreon.com slash unpops 
or on popsnetwork.supercast.tech. Got a whole bunch of different options for you to subscribe there. And uh, I'm launching a Substack soon called Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Friends, where you'll be able to give me money to read the things I make instead of uh, listen to them. It's writing. So Substack is for writing. I used to write. I don't know if people who listen to this podcast know that, but uh, it, there'd be different topics. It's not, you're not just going to go, I don't know. It'll look at it when it launches. Okay. All right. I think that's it for now. Let's get out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you.